Well, good morning, guys. It is a joy to see you guys. Let me ask y'all, how many of y'all have had the chance to see the movie Everest the last few weeks? Raise your hands. Just me. Okay. (laughs) That's a real fun moment as a preacher. (laughs) That's just great. Well, it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. I will say it's not really a date night movie. I wouldn't take your significant other. It's not going to be like warm and fuzzies. You're not going to be like holding hands, okay? But uh, it was awesome. Now, I, I will tell you guys, uh, some of you guys might have had the chance to read the movie into, or the, read the book Into Thin Air, which the movie's uh, kind of coming off of, but incredible storyline. I, I really wanted to see it in the movies. And, I, and I'll tell you guys, personally for me, I didn't need more confirmation that I would never scale Everest for my life. I mean, I'll be honest, I, I was a guy that was pretty stoked about the fact that we have like escalators and elevators dominating the new Kyle Field. I was like, that's, that's, I'm in for that, right? Third, third deck of Kyle Field, I'm like, I'm kind of piecing out of that. I'm looking for first deck tickets now, you know, my point in life. Okay, so scaling Everest, not my thing, all right? And so watching the movie, which apparently I was the only one who did. So uh, incredible story of these guys that go to try to summit the, the peak of Everest. They, these guys hike up into the base camp and they have to stay at the base camp of Everest for about 40 days just to acclimatize to that environment. And then they have a series of hikes up to the, uh, the summit of the deal. They begin to train for that actual day that they'll actually summit. And in the movie tells of a storm that happened in May of 1996, which you guys see a little bit of it as it reenacted, in which a storm comes out of nowhere as several of these teams are summiting the peak of Everest. And as they talk about it, literally at the peak of Everest, your body is literally dying. And so you have a really certain set amount of time that you can get up and that you've got to get back. Otherwise, if you don't stay within that time limit, your body is going to deprivate of oxygen and you're going to die. And so it's incredibly suspenseful. And then a storm comes out of nowhere as if, the intense, as if the hike of Everest wasn't intense enough. This storm comes out of nowhere and these guys have absolutely impossible odds that they got to face. Really, these two different groups that will summon it will be looking for one thing and one thing only in that moment. And that was deliverance and rescue from untold and unimaginable circumstances. On that day, uh, some will make it, some will make it down from the peak, some will not make it. On that day in May of 96, eight different people will die on that day. It was the second highest death toll of any day in which uh, uh, Everest was summited up until that point. Uh, there would be one dude, his name was Beck Weathers, he was a Texan because we're made tougher in Texas, uh, who would be left for dead and he would somehow survive that. Frostbite would take off his hands and his nose, which is why you don't want to see the movie <laughs> with a date, okay? But he would survive that, all right? Because again, we're made tougher in Texas, all right? Uh, but Everest, incredible movie. If you have a chance, don't, forget, don't worry about the movie because apparently none of y'all did worry about the movie. Grab the book Into Thin Air. I hear it's amazing, okay? Uh, that will kind of highlight the story. And so, so much will be said on uh, who survives, who doesn't survive, why do they survive, why do some not survive this incredible hike. And as they go through it, really, it gives us an incredible picture of a topic that we're going to look at for the rest, rest of the fall semester. And that's the topic of soteriology, which is just a fancy word uh, for salvation. And as we talk about salvation, really, it's nothing more. It's an incredibly familiar concept, although we have all kinds of theological jargon and big words. But all salvation really means is rescue from danger. We think about that in so many different physical contexts that are incredibly familiar, uh, whether that's a, a storm that hits Everest and people who are looking for rescue from that circumstances, or we think about a kid who's on a bike and a car is backing out and we're trying to rescue or save that child from danger. Or there's certain football tragedies that some of us wish we could have been saved from, right? But practical, physical work, really familiar with what salvation is like. 
It's not an unfamiliar concept, this idea of rescue from danger, rescue from uh, harm. And so when we think about spiritual salvation, it's no different. It's simply a rescue from spiritual danger and spiritual harm. As we jump into our Bibles, we're going to see salvation, this idea of salvation throughout our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. And we're going to look at this topic for the next six weeks. For the next six weeks, we're going to tunnel in. We're going to leave the series that we had, the book of Judges that we had for the first half of the fall. That some of you are like, thank goodness. That was dark, and we're going away from that, all right? But we're going to look at this topic of salvation. Really, we're going to dive in. We're going to go from this morning where we look at who gets saved. We're going to look at election in two weeks. We're going to look at the work of Christ next week. Uh, We're going to look at what God is going to do even in the future, what he begins now, when he'll finish down the road as we get to the last week into December. Uh, I'm really excited about this series. I'm really excited about you guys getting to think deeply and tackling some challenging topics. And so I encourage you guys, as y'all jump in the rest of the fall, grab some coffee, uh, buckle up, because we're going to jump in and we're going to tackle some really deep topics in the Word of God. I think it's going to be really fun. So we're going to go from who gets saved, why people get saved, how they get saved. But this morning, we're going to zero in on this topic of who gets saved. What is salvation? If it's a rescue from spiritual dangers like devil and sin and hell, then who gets saved? And really, as we think about that question, there are really people that kind of go to two different extremes with that question. Some will say that all people get saved. That those that come from a camp known as universalism will argue that there is a God and he saves all people. That there's no one who's going to be left on a mountain for dead, that all will be saved. To another extreme of atheism that will say there is no God and frankly, you don't need salvation. There is no salvation. Two different extremes. And what I want to do for us this morning is land is kind of in the middle in a moderating position. A summary statement that we're going to say today, or we're going to kind of highlight, because this is the historic position of Christianity. It's this, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the historic position of Christianity. That there is a salvation, there is a God, and the way that he saves some is by grace, through faith, in the person of Christ. That it's not up for all, not all will be saved, but it's also not that none will be saved. That it's a moderating position. And really, as we kind of tackle this topic, as we jump in this morning, I want you guys to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. It's where we're going to start this morning, Romans chapter 1. If you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, even if you don't have one at home, I want to remind you guys, we have Bibles on the table. Those Bibles are for you. You're welcome to take one this morning. Use it. Uh, You're also welcome to take that home with you. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love that to be a gift to you guys as well. Book of Romans is in the New Testament. Uh, It comes after uh, the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then past the book of Acts, and then we find the book of Romans. Incredibly rich book, especially on this topic of salvation. We'll probably be in and out of Romans probably most weeks of the rest of the fall. We're going to pick it up in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And as we jump into this topic of salvation, really, we kind of have to start with some bad news because what we're going to see from Romans 1 is that there is a global epidemic uh, that is larger, that is not localized like a storm on Everest, but there is a storm that is broken out that is global and that is universal in scale, which is exactly what Paul is going to start out for helping us to understand in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Notice what Paul tells us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul begins really the greatest section of this book is he begins a long treatise. And what he's going to say is he begins a treatise on theology. He's going to say that there is the wrath of God that's been revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness upon all men. It's a great starting spot. It's really warm and fuzzy, right? It feels a little bit like Judges the last six weeks, right? You're like, I thought you said we're moving on from that. All right, we're going to. 
But you got to grasp really what Paul's saying is that there's a storm that is broken out that's not localized on a mountaintop, but is universal in scope, and it's the wrath of God. That God does exist, and as he looks out on a humanity that has fallen and imperfect, that has fallen short of his standard, his wrath is kindled and it is broken out on all men and women. Why? Why has it broken out? Notice what he says in verse 18. He says at the end of it, they've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. What is humanity? What truth is it that humanity has suppressed? He's going to explain that in verse 21. When he says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That as Paul begins this great book of the book of Romans, what he's going to say as he begins out is that there's a storm that is broken out. It is the wrath of God and it's broken out on all humanity because they've received truth and they've rejected truth. What is it they've rejected? They've rejected that there is a creator God who exists and what they've done instead of worshiping the one who created humanity, they've turned around and they've worshiped the creation. And we do that all the time. That we've turned around and we've suppressed, we've rejected the truth that God handed to us. And the question is, how are we so sure? What is the truth that we rejected? And how can we be held responsible when it doesn't always seem like what God has revealed is absolutely clear to us? I'll tell you guys, uh, we have two kids. And I shared the story a few years ago when Caroline was really young. But now that Colt's kind of at the age that she was at a few years ago, he's kind of beginning to emulate something that we saw in Caroline way on. And that's it. Coulter right now, our, our boy, he's about three and a half. I'll tell you, as he tries to play hide and go seek, is awful. I mean, God bless him. I love him, but he's awful at hide and go seek, all right? There's three key strategies he's not grasped. One is you don't hide in plain sight, right? You don't just hide in the middle of the living room where everyone can see you. He's not grasped that. The other thing, second thing that he's not grasped is that you don't hide in the same spot in plain sight every single time, right? It doesn't really help you, all right? And here's the third thing. Here's the thing that he's really not grasped. It's really hard for him to get through because he's so relational. If you say, Colt, where are you? you do not answer the question, all right? You don't say, I'm right here, right? Or you don't actually communicate where you are underneath the bed, all right? Three key strategies that he's not grasped, all right? Is it appropriate for him to claim ignorance as to the rules of hide-and-go-seek? Yes, it is appropriate, right? But will that help him as he's being found out? No, right? Ignorance doesn't really work when you're trying to play hide-and-go-seek. It doesn't matter if you don't know the rules or not. It doesn't matter if you don't know how to hide well or not. You're still responsible and you still lose and he's still bad at high go seek. All right? Got it? Well, when it comes to God, as we jump into Romans chapter 1, the claim of ignorance for Colt when it comes to high and go seek is nothing. But for us in front of God, it's everything. That we think that we can say to God, I know that you think that you've spoken to us, but it's not that clear to us. <laughs> We think that we can claim ignorance to God that we don't know who you are. We don't know what you're like. We don't think that you should be able to hold us responsible. But Paul will say in Romans 1 that the claim of ignorance gets us nowhere. Why? Because it's simply not true. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, why is it that the men have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. They're condemned, but the question is, is it clear to humanity? Paul says, yes, it is clear. It's clear who God is because he's made it evident within us, inside of us. And he goes on further. He says, for God made it evident to them. Clearly, God believes that he's revealed himself to his people and he thinks it's evident to them. What exactly is it that he's revealed? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world is a visible attribute, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. (laughs) What's been clearly seen? 
His invisible attributes. Do you see the word play, right? What's been clearly seen, what's been made evident, the invisible attributes of God. Furthermore, it says his eternal power and his divine nature. Can you prove those things? No. But Paul will say it's been made evident to us. It's clear to us. So much so that he concludes uh, in verse 20, he says, it's been made understanding through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That apparently God has revealed himself to all men and women to such an extent that humanity is culpable, they're condemned, and apparently it's clear to them. That apparently the claim of ignorance to God does not hold up at the court because God will say, no, no, no. I've made these things clear to humanity within them and to them. Therefore, they have no excuse. They cannot claim ignorance to me. What's really startling as we begin this series is that what God has revealed to all people apparently is sufficient enough to condemn humanity. What Paul is speaking of here in Romans 1 is what we theologians will refer to as general revelation. That God has revealed himself in creation. God has revealed himself in the creation of humanity specifically in such a way that what he's revealed is sufficient enough to condemn humanity. That's the bad news. Bad news is that God has revealed himself to all men and women to such an extent that he can hold them condemned and culpable that they cannot say that they are without excuse. There's a global epidemic that has sweeped universally for all nations and all times and all of humanity is culpable and stands condemned before creator God. If this is a jury, if this is a court case, Romans 1 opens basically saying the defense has no defense before God. That God has revealed himself and he's made it clear. But here's the good news. There is good news that though there is a universal epidemic, there is also a unique vaccine. There is a unique vaccine. What is that? Jesus will speak of himself as the vaccine in John chapter 4 when he says this of himself. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Though the wrath of God has been kindled and has broken out over all of humanity, Jesus says in the midst of that wrath that's been kindled, that's broken out, Jesus says, I will die for you. And in order to be restored to relationship with that God, whose wrath I will provide a refuge and a shelter from, come to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. In fact, no one can come to the Father but through me. We get a stronger statement in Acts chapter 4 when it says this, there is salvation, this topic that we're going to hit for the next six weeks, in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is a global epidemic, but there is an, a unique vaccine, and that vaccine is the person of Jesus Christ, and there is no other vaccine. In a day and time in which tolerance is king and tolerance is everything, Acts chapter 4 sounds like a very intolerant statement. In a day and time, we like to say that all religions are the same, that essentially if you just boil them down, they're no different. Acts chapter 4 says, no, 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 they are exceedingly different. There's salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ. For a church to say, and to raise the word of God up to say, there is salvation in no one else in our day and time is the worst thing that you could say. It's not politically correct. It's not tolerant. It doesn't sound tolerant. All right? In a postmodern day that says your experience is what validates your life, your experience is what validates what's true or not, our experience and our culture today are saying nothing could be farther from the truth of what you see here in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So the question is, what will be your authority? 
Will you trust that the word of God is the inherent, inspired uh, statement of what is true in life? Or does your experience and your culture have a stronger voice for you? Where will you kneel and what will you trust? Really, as we get into Acts 4, as we look at John chapter, four, uh, John chapter 1, or John 14, verse 6, really what we're getting is a statement of exclusivism. Universalism says that all can be saved. Exclusivism says none can be saved except through one route, which is Jesus. In the middle is pluralism, which is really popular today, that says it's true that all religions are basically the same. All roads lead to the same source, lead to the same route to heaven. Acts 4, verse 12 says, no, no, no. All roads don't lead to the same place. In fact, all roads are not the same road. But the religions of our world are incredibly distinct and different. Islam is different than Christianity, which is different than Judaism, which is different than um, even Roman Catholicism. There are fundamental and profound differences in the world religions of our day. To think that we can blend them, to think that we can just make them uh, not distinct from one another is absolutely foolish, although that's popular today. There's a global epidemic, but there's a unique vaccine, and it has an exclusive source, and that's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. I want to read you guys from Romans chapter 10, because the question becomes, and how does this vaccine get uh, distributed to us? Romans chapter 10, verse 13, uh, will kind of highlight for us how one is saved. If salvation, if vaccine, if the cure from this epidemic comes from the person of Jesus Christ, then how do we enter into a relationship with Christ? How do we know of Christ? How does that work? Romans 10 gives us a little bit of a picture into that. In Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, we find this. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ global epidemic with a unique vaccine that is administrated, that is received as we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That though God's wrath has been kindled, he sent his only son to be a payment for our sins so that we could be reconciled with this creator God whose wrath has been kindled. And by coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, we find a refuge and a shelter from the wrath of God. Because his wrath has been poured out on Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about this next week. Whose death is an atonement. It is a covering for. It is a substitutionary sacrifice for us. That he dies in our place. That our death that we should have received becomes his. That he suffers the penalty for our sins that we don't have to receive anymore. He's our goat. He's our sacrifice. He's our lamb. It's his blood that is poured. So that ours does not have to be. That's the beauty of the gospel. That the, the wrath of God has been kindled, but God sends his only son, Jesus Christ, whose blood is shed as a payment and as a sacrifice for our sins so that our blood does not have to be shed so that we can have eternal life. But not all are saved, only those that come under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that shed blood is poured out and that gospel goes out as people are sent and as preachers go and proclaim it and as it's heard and as people believe. And so really, if you're thinking as you're kind of moving along this thought process, there's a global epidemic, but there's one cure. And the problem is, as you think about our world today, we think about our world going backwards. The reality is that one cure has not been administrated and has not been distributed to every single people, right? There is a global epidemic. There's a unique vaccine, but there's also a distribution problem, right? So look at our world today. Uh, not every single person has a church on the corner of their town, just like you do up and down every single street, right? 
So look at some countries, look at some tribes. Not every single person has a Bible in their language. Not every single person has the opportunity to hear the message of good news. And so what do we do with that? There's a distribution problem. Put it much more superficially, uh, in our home, there are times, maybe even in your home, where maybe once in a blue moon, all of your roommates are home, you all have a dinner together, and then you go to the cupboard for dessert, and you realize there's less cookies than there are people, right? There's a distribution problem, right? In our home, what we do is we just give the kids fruit, and so we save the cookies for ourselves, right? (laughs) Maybe I lie to them. I'm just kidding, all right? But there's a distribution problem. If we really look at our world, if we're honest, not everyone seems to be within reach of the gospel, And if not everyone is within reach of the gospel, then how does God hold them accountable for a message that they have to hear in order to be saved, right? The scenario that's often thrown out is the African tribesman. What about the guy who's sitting off in Africa in some tribe where no missionaries ever come to, and he wants to believe in God, he wants to believe in Jesus, he wants eternal life, he wants to be forgiven for his sins, but no one ever comes and tells him. Will God send that person to hell? Or flipped around to another scenario, what about those who don't have the ability to understand and hear the message of the gospel? Maybe they don't have the age, maybe they don't have the capacity. Will God judge them? Because under general revelation, they've fallen under condemnation, but if they cannot receive the unique vaccine, then they cannot be saved. They cannot escape out of that wrath. What do you do with that group of people? I'll tell you guys, this question was one that we did five years ago in a sermon series called Hard Questions, and we took 45 minutes to do that. We don't have 45 minutes left in our morning, right? Uh, And so what I'm going to try to do really briefly is give you guys some tracks to run on and some verses to go to later on so you can think through that question because it's a big one, all right? Uh, We'll have some more time to talk about it as tables, but I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. But I know for some of you guys, it's a really big question, all right? And so let me give you guys some assumptions that we need to work off of as to who God is and how God works. The first is this. We know from 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that God desires that none perish. But as we think about his wrath being kindled, we think about the fact that he's given an offering so that we all could escape that wrath, that we could find salvation. We also have to recognize he's done that because he doesn't desire for any to perish. That in terms of his makeup, in terms of his character, in terms of what he does, it's his desire that none would perish, all right? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. A little bit of homework for you. Second assumption, that it is God's character, it is his tendency to always defend the defenseless. As we think about this question of the African tribesmen and we think about someone who's Down syndrome maybe or doesn't have the ability to hear the gospel and respond rationally, uh, the question is, what is God going to do with them? And I think one of the things we have to affirm over and over again is that it's the character of God from Matthew chapter 19, verse 14 and James 1, 27, that he always defends the defenseless. He's always moving in the direction of those that are voiceless and nameless and faceless. That's what he does. That's who he's about. That's what he's like. Thirdly, we know from Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, that God has declared to everywhere, to all men everywhere now, that they have to repent on the basis of the blood, work, and person of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter, 13, Acts chapter 17 will say that God has overlooked the times of ignorance, and he's now declaring to all men everywhere to repent on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. So in the midst of these three assumptions that kind of form a groundwork for how we're to proceed with this question, it's absolutely vital that we grasp these three. And as we grasp these three and as we begin to think about different scenarios, there's two different categories of scenarios that you and I have to grasp. The first is this, those with the age and the ability to respond to the gospel, all right? 
So this is your African tribesman, all right, in that scenario. That he has the ability, he has the age, he has the ability to reason and to grasp truth. And the question is, if he never hears the gospel, will God judge him and potentially condemn him? How do we answer that when he has the ability and he has the age to potentially respond? A couple passages that I think are really significant for us as we think about this answer. One is the parable of the soil uh, and the sower in Matthew or Mark chapter 4. And to condense it for you real briefly, what we see in Mark 4 is that as God provides revelation to men and women, as they respond to what he's provided, if they respond in faith, he provides more. And as they respond in faith, he provides more. And so as you move from general revelation, what God has given to all men and women, as men and women respond in faith to that, he's going to continue to provide them more revelation, moving them to special revelation, all right? Secondly, we find from Acts chapter 8, verse 29, verse 35, there's a, there's a great story there. If you guys were in big church the uh, last couple of weeks, uh, this is what we hit last week, actually, in big church. I still call it that, all right? Uh, but there's a story of an Ethiopian eunuch who's on the road, he's traveling, he's reading Isaiah 53, the story of the suffering servant, and he's wondering, who is this person? <laughs> who is it that's going to give his life as a ransom and as a suffering servant for the many and for the nation? He cannot answer it. He has revelation that's been given to the nation, but he needs someone to come and explain to him specifically who this is so that he can understand that, grasp that, and believe. And what does God do? God calls up Philip, an evangelist, and sends Philip and has a God-ordained, sovereign uh, intersection moment with Philip and this guy so that Philip says, what are you reading? And he explains, and then Philip explains Isaiah 53 to him. And what happens to the Ethiopian eunuch? He believes Philip, he responds in faith, and he's converted, and he moves into eternal life and receives the forgiveness of sins, and he enters a relationship with Christ. What are these two passages helping highlight for us? I think the idea of the African tribesman, someone who wants to believe but doesn't have the gospel, frankly, I think is a little bit of a straw man. I don't think that person actually fully exists. Because what we see from Mark 4, what we see from Acts 8, is that as men and women respond to what God has revealed to all men and women, as they respond in faith to that, God is always moving to provide them more revelation, moving them to a place where they'll believe. It seems to be the tendency, that seems to be the trajectory, what we see over and over again in the New Testament. Uh, a couple of other extra-biblical stories I've heard before. One is, I've heard of actual tribes that when a missionary actually finally got to them, they had somehow, as God must have moved and inspired and worked in their culture, they had already created an amazing picture of the gospel. They knew that God would come down in the form of a man, that he would give his life for the many, and that they would believe in the basis of his death that they could be reconciled to him. Before a missionary ever got there, somehow God had been working in the culture that they had grasped that idea. And they believe that idea. I've heard of other stories as well in the Muslim context with Islam where uh, this is routinely something I pray for with some of our Muslim missionaries that are in parts of the world that are really dark and really hard where we pray that God would show up in dreams and in visions to individuals and that's often how he works in the midst of an Islamic culture as he breaks in sometimes when missionaries can't get there. So God can move and God can work in significant ways. And as many women respond in faith to what they're given, he continues to provide them more and more revelation so they can come to a place where they can believe the gospel and enter eternal life. So those are kind of breadcrumbs that lay a bit of a trail for us to have a confident expectation. But by and large, we're still kind of speculating a bit. In terms of speculation, it gets even stronger as we think about the second category. And this is where we're going to wrap up here. And that's those without age and ability. 
I'll tell you guys, this is not a theoretical question for Marcy and I. We've had three different miscarriages uh, where we've lost pregnancies, one of which we lost at 20 weeks. And so as we think about those that don't have the age or the ability to respond in faith in turn wondering where they're going to be, I'll tell you it's our assumption and it's our confidence in terms of the nature of God that is most likely going to be that one day when we die and we show up into the presence of Christ, I firmly believe that my little boy that was 20 weeks when we lost him is going to be there to greet me. (laughs) He's going to show the old man around heaven, all right? That's what I believe. Uh, we kind of get a similar assumption from David who loses a child in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. But again, we're working off of assumptions as to the character of God and as to how God works. I think that's a safe assumption. It's a confident assumption that we can have. But again, I'll admit, we're not 100% sure. I can't be dogmatic. But for so many of us that are so worried about those that haven't heard and are worried that they may not escape judgment, we can spend a lot of time intellectually wrestling with that topic. But let me move us off of an intellectual assumption and argument toward a practical response, and that's this. That if you're really worried about those that have not heard the gospel and what may happen to them, then it would seem that it's the most appropriate that our response practically would be to share the gospel, right? To move towards those that we know that maybe haven't heard the gospel and to be a representative and to be a spokesperson for God. Let me give you guys two different ways you can do that. The first is locally. I want to challenge you guys locally in your life to be praying for three different people that you know that don't know Jesus Christ. Praying that God will be working in their life, praying that God will be working in their heart, and praying for an opportunity to share the words of hope and grace with them. If you're concerned that there are some people who do not know the gospel, then let's move towards them as a church and as a representative of Jesus and speak those words of life and of hope and of grace. Three people locally. Can you come back next week having identified three different people in your life that you can be consistently praying for, that they would come to know the gospel and that they respond in faith to the gospel in terms of the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done, his death, burial, and resurrection. The second thing is it's not just a local assignment for us as a church, but it's also a global one. And so we spent the last two Sundays talking about world missions, talking about what God is doing in East Asia, what he's doing in Greece, what he's doing in Kansas City, and even in a Muslim location. And so we as a church, we as a community, we as a college ministry have an amazing opportunity not just to have an impact here locally, but also have an impact globally where there is not a church on every corner, where there truly are not a hundred different people who could fill a certain role, but also to be in a place where they are truly unreached, where they truly don't have the gospel, they don't have the Bible in a language, they may not have any opportunity unless sometimes we go. So one of the things we've been saying, we've been highlighting the last couple of weeks is that we, as a college ministry, we as a church have an amazing opportunity with some established partnerships to go and to be a part of that and to bring the gospel where it's not, to help establish worship where it does not currently exist. And so a couple of ways you guys can do that. Uh, we have six-week trips in the summer, but we also have two different trips this winter that are going to go. And so if you're a senior and you can't do a six-week trip this summer, Marcy and I want to invite you. We're going to be on the East Asia trip. Come with us. January 5th, January 15th, applications are due a week from tomorrow. We'd love for you to consider that. Uh, The opportunity to come and to step into a culture where there's not a church on every corner, to share the gospel to a people who are desperately looking for hope and to speak into that vacuum. Not just our winter trips, but also our summer trips, East Asia, Greece, and also Kansas City. To step into cities, to step into nations, to have an opportunity to impact them on a college campus, so that the gospel spreads amongst those that have never heard it before. If our concern is for those that haven't heard it, and we can wrestle with it intellectually, why don't we wrestle with it practically? Why don't we move towards those that don't know him 
And why don't we bring the gospel where it doesn't exist and where worship hasn't been established? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the amazing treasure that you've given us of the gospel. That Jesus died, that he was buried, that he resurrected, and that he rose three days later. That he conquered sin, that he conquered death. And that he invited his church to be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. And Father, I pray for us as a community and as a ministry and as a church. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to move into our classrooms, to move into our apartments, to move into our dorms, to move into our workplaces one day uh, with the gospel, uh, with a representation of who you are and an opportunity to reach out, Lord. I pray that you will help us to not live in a bubble, to not so insulate ourselves with people that agree with exactly what we believe. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be salt and light in our city, in our nation, and in the nations in the world. Lord, allow us to have that kind of world vision. Allow us to have that kind of vision for our cities and for our communities, Lord, that we could take this incredible message, this unique vaccine that you've put into our hands as weak vessels as we are to be spokespeople for. Lord, allow us to speak with boldness. Allow us to speak with compassion. Allow us to speak winsomely as we represent you in a city and in a culture and in a nation that so desperately needs to know you and see you more powerfully, Lord. We ask for these things through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.